I'm Max Barnett, Commercial Strategy Lead at Delta Trey. And I'm David Kushnan, Head of Content at Leaders. And this is The Blueprint, the podcast for straightforward strategic thinking in sport. Over the course of this series, brought to you by Delta Trey and Leaders, we'll be exploring how to build and execute great strategy and how to avoid doing strategy badly. We'll hear from some of sport's leading strategists about how they think, plan and execute strategy with flexibility, bringing projects or partnerships to life and injecting creativity. And we'll take you inside some of sport's most recognisable organisations for real life examples of where strategy worked and sometimes where it didn't. Welcome to The Blueprint. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Blueprint HQ here in the leaders slash Delta Trade strategic seller. And look what I found. It's Max Barnett. Max, good to have you with us again. Thanks, DC. Looking forward to it. Shall we have a check in and find out who is on the show today? Yeah, let's do it. Russell Scabetti, Vice President of Strategy and Business Intelligence for the New York Giants. Okay, Russell Skibetti. Uh, Russell has been with the Giants right at the heart of the NFL in America's number one media market since 2019, creating and managing the business intelligence department to optimize how the business side of the Giants organization leverages data and technology to drive revenue and fan engagement. So think CRM, lead scoring, modeling, pricing and reporting, and also collaborating across other departments on strategic planning and decisions. Prior to the Giants, he was CMO at Core Software, and before that, whisper it, he spent a couple of years at the New York Jets. Uh, Russell is great. He's one of the leading thinkers on this stuff in our industry. So, Max, really looking forward to this one. Yeah, one of the leading uh, thinkers and st- strategists, but also one of the heavyweights, right, in sports uh, with the, the Giants, I think, being the fourth largest by franchise value in the NFL. So really looking forward to this one. Lots to get into. Let's get out onto the strategic field with Russell Scabetti of the New York Giants. This is The Blueprint. Russell, fantastic to have you with us. Let's get straight into it. Give us your definition of strategy. So there's the real definition and then then the the fun definition. I'll start with the fun definition for me is usually, I joke, strategy is all the items that don't naturally live in one clean department that kind of end up, need to go somewhere. And either they go somewhere because they don't fit somewhere or because they almost fit everywhere right? Strategy can tie in so many different groups. So um, that could be everything from when we had to return from COVID or thinking about international or thinking about emerging trends and technology and mobile. Um, to, to give you more of a clean definition, um, I look at strategy as, as balance and alignment across these multiple lines of business, trying to have that long-term vision in mind, trying to think about results and growth. Um, it can It can be specific projects, it can be overall business plans and forecasts, but kind of has that umbrella vision, if you will, that it it doesn't live in any one particular line of the business. And Russell, obviously, with the NFL, it's it's week to week, game to game, there's that hyper focus on, on, on the product on pitch. But can you tell us a little bit about how 
you work with the giant's ownership and how their strategy is then played out and executed and interpreted by you. Well, I mean, I think when it comes from ownership, I mean, I'm definitely only on the business side of the house. The, the great thing is we have, a, we have a wonderful collaboration with football. Um, we've had some major changes there over the last 18 months. Uh, and so they're very participatory in terms of understanding what we want to do with the business in terms of, you know, what our guiding visions are. Um, my boss, Pete Welly, is our chief business officer. Uh, his kind of guiding mantra is data-driven, digital-first, customer-centric, and growth-focused. And so when you think about how that rolls up to ownership, um, it really is about how does that line up with revenue generation? How does it line up with what we're doing in terms of creating content, creating access for our fans to see what's happening behind the scenes? Uh, a lot of that came through this offseason with our, with our new command center draft room, um, our Giants Life content, a lot of things you're seeing on social. So I, I think it's really about communicating what drives the needle for our fans, because that in turn is what drives the needle for revenue. And building on that, Russell, tell us a little bit about all the work that you have um, been involved in and led on within the, the Giants organization around the business intelligence department and what that sort of business in intelligence strategy looked like at the outset. You joined the Giants in 2019 and what it looks like now. Uh, absolutely. So uh, I feel very lucky to have joined the organization in fall of 19. Like I said Pete joined uh, earlier that spring. And one of his big first initiatives was to really launch our analytics capabilities. So had a bit of a, of a clean slate opportunity to build it the way we wanted to. Um, kind of looked internally, did a full audit, if you will, of what the organization has used in the past. Uh, the great thing is there was a lot of enthusiasm for wanting these capabilities across all the different lines of business. That is usually one of the biggest challenges, I think, when you're building out those types of capabilities is resistance to, oh, we don't want to change. None of that was here. Um, we had actually a very strong amount of data, and it was really about corralling it and using it in the right way and integrating it into business processes. So after kind of taking that audit, if you will, of, of what we had, what we needed to have, that kind of laid out a what should have been a nice kind of clean 6, 12, 18-month roadmap of, of improving our CRM, launching our data warehouse, uh, rolling out reports, Tableau dashboards throughout the organization, um, getting into pricing models, getting into retention models. Uh, however, about three months into that, four months into that, COVID started. So the, uh, the, the natural timeline, if you will, definitely stretched out a little bit as we had to adapt and evolve to uh, how COVID changed that 2020 season. Um, but, but really, it was, it was, again, just laying out what those needs were, working department by department, um, and building out that cadence of how we were going to use these new platforms. You said that you didn't meet with a lot of resistance. Was that a sort of happy accident, or was that something that has had already been somehow deliberately woven into the, the culture. It sounds like we're talking about a nice melding of strat where strategy meets culture and it works. What tell, Take us inside that dynamic. I, I felt like the red carpet had been rolled out for me coming in because there was already an enthusiasm and, and a clear vision that we were going to become a data-driven organization. Everyone was seeking out ways to improve. Um, that could have, that was everything from partnerships, wanting to have better visibility in terms of how we measure social and digital, ticketing in terms of how we can really get better with dynamic pricing and sales processes and prospecting and um, automating how data flowed around the organization. 
so yeah, I think it was really a very conscious decision that this is a direction we want to take the organization in. It's a direction the football side has taken as well. Um, and so, yeah, the resistance just wasn't there at all. And Russell, it, it sounds like your role was then one of kind of operationalizing that that strategy and it was one of execution. When you arrived, what kind of kind of format was that strategy in? Uh, was it very high level? Was it all laid out? Like, tell us where you entered the journey. The nice thing is it was, I entered when it was still very conceptual, which I think is ideal. Um, back in my previous days when I was at CORE, I always, when I was talking to organizations, I always suggested you need to bring in the people before you bring in the products, right? Because everyone's going to have different preferences. Everyone's going to, everyone needs the opportunity to see what things are going to move the needle the most. So um, I came in where, where the analytics element was really about, here's the concept, here's the North Star, here is how we want to look at making decisions differently. Um, you know, here's our revenue goals, here's where, here's where we're trying to get to. Now, how are we going to get there? And the choices you make and how you get there, there's a lot of different paths to get there. Again, your choice in platforms, whether what, what systems and processes you're prioritizing, prioritizing first versus kind of putting on the back burner because you can't tackle everything all at once. Um, so I, I think I had a lot of opportunity to kind of make those assessments and roll those, roll those systems out piece by piece. Yeah, it's that sort of people, process, technology, building that plan to execute. And and um, you, you, you came in and it was conceptual. You came in and started working with the different departments to understand their needs and then start delivering that data. Can you tell us about you know, when a couple of moments or, or a moment where it really clicked and for the first time you saw the strategy in action and results being delivered? And actually, do those do those moments actually happen, yeah. or is it much more glide path sort of? In, you know, is the, are there ever those big eureka moments during something like this? There's always lots of little moments, like when you when you can see the impact of a pricing change, and when you see sales reps buy in, and and you see all of a sudden the pipeline starts to come to life, and you can actually measure things that were harder to measure in the past. So there's a lot of little moments, like and that everyone it's a very cliche, and normally I hate talking in cliches, but everyone looks for quick wins because when you get those quick wins, you get one person excited, then the person next to them gets excited, and so that keeps the momentum going. Um, I'd say at a higher level. Um, you know, there's, there's one sort of actually a little more recent project that I think really highlights how these worlds all come together. Uh, and that was a lot of what we put into our uh, game day experience last year. Um, it started the off-season prior, and a lot of things really when it comes from the strategy side are really off-season driven. Because once you're in season, it is so operational. It's just game to game. Everything is about what's happening leading up to Sunday. But going into the, uh, the off-season before the the 22 season uh we looked at our voice of the fan survey what are our fans saying about everything about the game experience and forget to put it set aside what we can't control on the field what are the things that we can control uh so a lot of that is survey and data driven but let's get a little smarter about that let's actually run that survey data through some models and figure out which things have the biggest impact so we love the fact that tailgating is an incredible part of experience, but in terms of how much we control it or how much it has an impact on the overall score is more minimal, say, than um, what happens on the video boards and what the pregame or the exit experience is like. So ran those through, tried to prioritize different elements in the game experience. 
from there, we meet with marketing. We meet with game day operations. We start figuring out our strategy for 22, uh, everything from game day themes to the launch of our legacy platform and the content that comes with that. Um, there was a lot of feedback around music and audio, and that led to you know, having a DJ uh, element to, game, to our game day experience, having more alumni integration. Um, we essentially took all the data, took all the feedback, brought all the groups together, tied into partnerships as well. Something like the legacy platform also gives us a tremendous partnership opportunity. Um, and in the end result, it, listen, it helped that the team had an incredible year, but we also had the largest growth in the league in terms of our game day presentation and game day satisfaction scores uh, when we looked at this year's Voice of the Fan. Uh, so I look at that as just that wonderful kind of combination of the data, the strategy, the execution, partnerships, marketing, ops, all working together um, to really tackle something that was important for us this past year. And, and if I'm getting this right, or if, D, if DC and I are getting this right, you're, as you said, sort of acting as that kind of central conduit to spread the kind of data, the data-led insights into the other departments. You mentioned some of them there. Do you have resistance there? How do you, when it's, when the data's suggesting one thing but there's disagreement from the other person and they're saying well inexperienced have there been challenges like that before i wouldn't put it as challenges i think there's always going to be times and there were some where the data said one thing and it might go against someone's instinct uh i think the important thing and the reason to the way you maintain buy-in is to not just assume that because the data says x that it's a unilateral decision and therefore there is no ability to voice. You want to let everyone have a voice at the table. Um, instinct, I love when people have instinct. I always joke around that without people realizing it, instinct is actually the internalization of data, right? It's, I've seen this before. I have multiple experiences or examples to go from. That's still data. It might not be as granular. It might not be as, um, predictive or you know statistically significant if you're going to get into that side of it but it is still very useful data um so you just got to bring those voices to the table and and balance the what that experience says versus what the models are saying and and we get to a good point and you, that's how you also get everyone comfortable with continuously actually wanting to get the data yeah, it was it was interesting. That reminds me of the conversation DC and I had with a, with another US franchise where they said one of the most valuable data sets was actually their sales reps and going back to them and quantifying what they'd learned and coupling that with the kind of quant data. We thought I thought that was a really interesting uh, case study in terms of how a strategy department was really using all sources of information to to find insights and then operationalize insights. Your, your staff, every time a person on your team talks to a fan, talks to a customer, they can capture one, two, five, ten pieces of data about their fandom, why they may buy, why they may not buy. And if you capture that data in a structured, consistent manner, you have tremendous insights that come out of that. Yeah, and it's it, it's that culture, right? That every every conversation is valuable, um, and if you can kind of harvest that information and centralize it, yeah, it's incredibly powerful. Absolutely. Russell, let's um, talk a little bit about um, mistakes because they can often happen um, or maybe not so often. Uh, but what do you think are the most common mistakes that you see in people, in sports organizations as strategies are built and executed? Um. It might be a little, it sort of actually comes back to one of the last points. I think 
sometimes the challenge might be when you are just unilaterally saying this is the direction we have to go and people feel like their voice is being cut out of the process. Um, and, and that can be, that can happen at a leadership level, that can happen at a data level. There's many reasons why that might happen. Um, take for example, it's something like pricing because pricing is a very data-driven topic. People have very strong opinions on it. The data might say very clearly, absolutely, you can raise this price from $100 to $150, no problem. The market says it can bear it. We're undervalued, you know, that price is way too low, right? We have pricing conversations all the time in terms of looking at our season tickets, okay, our single game tickets. But just because the data says market value, sell-through rate, absolutely raise this price. Well, how long have the people in that section been paying that price? What percentage of that audience are your season ticket members? What's the response from fans and the public going to be like to that type of pricing change? Like you need to think about a lot more factors, even if the data says, yes, you can do something. Um, so I think that's a really important mistake to avoid is to, to get those voices, um, analytical voices, non-analytical voices, um, because you need to make sure you're not overlooking something um, that may come out of what you think is the right decision. Yeah, it's the it's the intangibles as well, right, Russell? I, I, on this side of the pond, there's always lots of noise when the uh, Premier League clubs release their season ticket prices and all of that sort of stuff, and seeing why people are keeping or raising prices. And it's, it is that intangible of, of being perceived as being too data-driven, being too uh, commercial in your approach. Yeah, no, nothing happens in a vacuum. Right, and that and that can be a problem sometimes if you you look at the analytics without without the proper perspective. Thinking about um, where and how the giants operate and thinking about a data-driven strategy, what's the approach, what's your approach been uh, in terms of bringing data sets from elsewhere, from the central league office, from partners into your infrastructure, into your ecosystem? And what are the sort of implications of that in terms of making sure that there is alignment across the the type of data you're trying to collect why you're trying to collect it and what it can be used for there's a lot there's a lot in that question uh there's there's no <laughs> it's a multi it's a multi-part question russell <laughs> and there are multiple data sets to choose from there's a lot of different pieces flowing into uh any team's ecosystem at this point including ours um, you, there's, of course, your, your traditional standard first-party data coming from your buyers, coming from your people signing up from the newsletter and entering contests. And uh, we have this wonderfully engaged fan base, millions of fans that are willingly participating and sharing. Um, but you're never going to have a complete view of everything you need if you don't look outside that set as well. There's, so we use third-party syndicated research. Um, we've been working with Nielsen for several years uh, on a variety of, of their uh, research tools that help us from a partnership uh, and a customer behavior perspective. Uh, we work with Zoom for a lot of great insights around social data. Um, we, we work with the league. The league is a great example, right? The league uh, has put a lot of time and energy into what they call the one-to-one -one fan engagement program. 
And that is a league data platform where the league and clubs collaborate around, um, around the ability of clubs sharing their data back to the league, league understanding and sharing data back to clubs for people that they've identified that are Giants fans or, or that are in our market that maybe we hadn't identified in the past. So they've taken the, the perspective of that if we all work together, we can really enhance everyone's ecosystems and doing it in a way that handles privacy and compliance and, and all the things that you need to, because the more complicated and the more you do bring in these different types of feeds, the more emphasis that you need to make sure you put on privacy and compliance and how you're using that information. So Russell, I suppose you've touched on a, on a, on a topic there in terms of fan data, which is an incredibly important, if not the most important strategic initiative in our, in our industry, I'd say at the moment. Um, you've talked about the balance between what you're focused on as a, as a team, as a franchise, what the league is doing for you, how you involve third parties. Can you, you know, a lot of your job is about executing that strategy, working with the, with other teams to do that. But I'm assuming part of your role is also, you know, future proofing, looking looking at what things are coming up and how do you react and kind of have first mover advantage. Um, how do you how do you balance that with the league, right? Because the league are going to be doing that as well. Like how how does that work? I think the the league. I think at the end of the day, the league and the clubs are fairly unified in their long-term interests, right? The way we convert fans into customers and different it has it is different, right? For us, we're always going to have a, a, a ticketing focus, suites, hospitality, if our own team partnerships. The league is going to have the focus on, of course, media rights at, at a high level, but they have their own consumer products, merchandise, NFL Plus. So the way you try to convert fans um, might be different, right? They want them to, in perfect, perfect world, the fans buying tickets and they're an NFL plus subscriber, for example. Um, but I think in this case, the right perspective, which the league has and the clubs uh, and the clubs of leagues have actually worked very closely together on, which is I think why the perspectives have been balanced here is that everyone agrees we need to think about the fan first. How do we make sure the fan isn't getting overwhelmed with the wrong messaging? right? Fans are going to have different preferences and their preferences might be multiple products. Their preferences might be one or two. The more we can properly share and understand what the fan is asking for or telling us about their behavior or requesting, then the league says this fan is interested in NFL plus or they're not. Then we should make sure the messaging they get aligns with that and vice versa. This fan isn't close enough to buy tickets, but so it's better to focus them on other types of opportunities. So the whole program is really, at the end of the day, focused around giving the fan what they want when they want it. And I think the more the leagues and clubs collaborate on it being a fan perspective first, then all the, the data ecosystem to support that should go much smoother. Tell us a little bit about the New York market in particular. It strikes us that a lot of NFL clubs are nationally if not internationally renowned brands but at the same time a lot of them are operating in quite a localized marketplace uh, from a ticketing perspective and 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 you know a, a fan engagement perspective um how different is new york as a market given everything else that is going on there and the fact that you've got two two clubs you know what what are the particularities of the the new york marketplace I love being in the New York marketplace. I've had I'm in a, in a particularly interesting seat because I actually worked 
with the Jets earlier in my career, yes. and and now I've been here, so I've definitely seen it from both green and blue perspectives. Um, is that is that still frowned upon, Russell, or have you passed that point in your uh, it, Giants career? It's all it, it, there's. Uh, it's okay. Everyone everyone knows. I don't have to hide it or anything. It's uh, it's it's <laughs> it's all above board. Good. Um, uh, New York market is incredible, right? I mean, the fact that the market does support two NFL teams, right, is important. And not only does the does it support two NFL teams. It supports millions of fans that are in New York that that might be fans of other teams, right? It is, you know, it's 27 million people, rough, essentially, or roughly in in our in our in our market area here. And you look at New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. So, uh, tremendous opportunity from a partnerships perspective. Uh, you know, we have from the hospitality perspective, uh, we have I think very unique advantages that other markets may not have. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why we have the, the volume of suite and club inventory that we do in this building. Um, you know, I'd say some of the unique things are, um, you know, I can't assume necessarily just because someone's a fan of the NFL and they live in New York that they're a fan of my team. Other markets can make those assumptions, right? Um, so I always prioritize clear identified fandom over geography. Right. I will always I always want to make sure I do everything I can to identify that this person is engaging because they're a Giants fan first. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, the Jets probably do the same. Right. So that way, you know, I don't want to I'm not going to try to convert a Jets fan. I want to continue to grow and engage those Giants fans. Um, so I think that that's a little bit of a different thing. The fact that you've got the two teams together here. Um, but. The, the size supports it. Um, we have an incredible fan base, one of the largest in the league. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely not a hindrance. And just thinking geographically uh, for a, a second, local, national, international, of course, uh, now, and, and we all know about the NFL, stretching its tentacles into uh, all sorts of exciting new markets, particularly sort of in a longstanding way now uh, in the UK. Um from a from a club perspective and a club that you know occasionally you know is you know out and about for sort of further afield than than the US uh, playing games how much time energy effort can you as an organization devote to quote the international strategy that everybody talks about when it comes to the NFL and its teams versus the the day job, if you like, of making sure that you're absolutely optimizing at that sort of local, national level? It's a great question. I, I think it's still a very open question. Some clubs have jumped in much further. We've been a little, you know, we haven't jumped in quite as much as others. We've mostly still taken a little bit of a wait and see, but we have, um, you know, some opinions on, on where and when we expect to get a little more active in that program. Uh, I think I, I, I think it really depends on on each club in terms of um, if they where they see the opportunity in the short term versus the long term. I think in the long term, there there's no question that these markets do present tremendous opportunity. I think the interesting thing is to see how the league continues to evolve the program, how they manage what categories teams can sell into, how many teams are in each market, what markets they're hosting games in. And you've already seen that expand into Germany. It wouldn't surprise me if they expanded to other, other markets as well. So I, I, think, I think it has tremendous potential. 
Um, I think it'll still mostly be complementary. And, and again, how complementary it is probably really depends on the size of the market. Again, you mentioned New York. Nothing is ever going to get as large, I think, as, as the opportunity here in the New York market. It doesn't mean the opportunity in, in a Germany or a France or the UK isn't an incredibly additive, um, but New York's always going to be our focus. I suppose the broader point here is about, and the geographical one is, is but one example of many, I'm sure, multiple strategies in play at once, you know, overlapping with each other, colliding with each other, blending together. What's your assessment of how that works in practice within an organization where, you, you know, you have several departments, there might be one overarching strategic aim, but there's all sorts of uh, projects, initiatives that, that are certainly given the label strategy, I would imagine, within within the organization. How are you how are you and the organization approaching prioritizing and actually achieving clarity for everybody working on the projects in terms of which are the first and foremost strategic focuses? I think you need to have really open communication. Um, we have constant communication across the leadership team in terms of what those priorities are, um, again, what that North Star is in terms of fan growth, revenue growth, how we're, you know, how we're going to get there. Um, you know, trying to do our best to, you know, forecast the right P&L in terms of what areas are going to have the biggest short-term versus long-term impact um, and have those honest conversations about how we prioritize. I say a lot of that, again, really happens in the off-season because once the season gets here, it's, it tends to be a little more chaotic in terms of uh, focus is really on what's happening at the next the next game. So I think, again, I think it's really about that communication across the executive team, understanding where those opportunities lie. Um, you know, and, and by the way, just because we're having those conversations with the executive team doesn't mean the project champion isn't someone else, right? You know, I, 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 there are a couple of people that have strategy in their title, to your point, um, but, you know, project management is just as critical as, you know, what the strategy is, because if you can't execute on that strategy, you know, you're not going to see it to fruition. So the, the project champion or the project manager could come from the marketing department, could come from game ops, could come from analytics, could come from sales, right? Who's going to really make sure that we can, we can get into the details and execute for me when I'm, you know, if I'm running that particular project, I get into the details. I use Kanban boards and, and try to manage specific tasks and ownership and deadlines. Um, that's getting more into the project management detail element of it. Um, but I think, I think all that stuff really happens in the off season as we, as we agree on what those priorities are. And I suppose you touch on something there, Russell, and don't want to assume, but in terms of obstacles to creating and, and executing great strategy, what do you think some of those obstacles are that are unique to sports and entertainment? Is it that once the whistle goes, once the season starts, it's all hands on deck for the for delivering or yeah, what are some of the other obstacles that you see in sports and entertainment that make our industry unique? Um, I would, I mean, just natural, the natural seasonality of it is very different than any other industry in terms of in season, off season. Um, I think I always, you know, sports is, is essentially an industry of these little micro industries. You've got the ticket sales industry, you've got partnership sales industry, you've got concessions, you've got merchandise. And so, you have to be careful to not let any one particular area um, overweigh 
um, versus long-term decisions, in, in general, short-term versus long-term thinking, um, because of that seasonality element. There might think, be things that take such a short-term focus in terms of a need to hit a revenue goal or a partnership goal. Um, you need to make sure that any of those decisions, even back to our ticket pricing from earlier, needs to be thinking about the three to five years out, not just, ju not just what's happening on, on Sunday or what's happening at the next game. Uh, and then, of course, the variability of team performance. Um, you know, we've ever, everyone who works on the team side has been through the, the, the good years and the bad years. Um, and it's trying to create that stability, regardless of what happens on the field. Yeah, I suppose it's that challenge of, of decoupling, right? Like to the, a degree. The, yeah. To a degree, right? You, don't, you want to decouple enough, but not so much that, you know, you don't want to take advantage of, of those opportunities. You know, we had an incredible season this past year. Um, and that, you know, how you respond to that may say, all right, we are going to prioritize something differently to take advantage of the momentum, right? That's different than throwing away a long-term plan, right? You need to, so there, there's, you, you can't fully decouple. You can't fully decouple. That's a, that's a message for life there, Russell. Um, we've got two more questions for you. Um, first of all, really keen to get your view on, and we appreciate that it's not always visible if you're not working inside an organization, but who do you see across the sports and entertainment landscape? And it could be an individual, it could be an organization who you feel is building and executing strategy really well. I got lots, lots of, lots of thoughts. I, I love the analytics community. So a lot of the folks I talk to the most are ones that maybe wear more of the BI along with the strategy hat, right? Um, uh, the, I think everything the 49ers have done over the last few years, especially that, that leads to Elevate and the fact that they have that element that can also then drive, you know, different projects and things they can do with the 49ers. Um, I love what Miami and the Dolphins did with F1 and how they've been able to take the F1 race and turn that into things that also could improve what's happening at the stadium. Um, from a from a from an analytics perspective, there's you know Justin Watkins down at the Braves and Netta Tabatabi at the Sharks or Corey Ruff at the Bears, um, multiple others. Jay Real at the Magic. There's there's folks that I've gone to as um, as resources and peers that. I know are always pushing the envelope and, and are and are doing great things at their respective clubs, um, and even things like MLSE. I think on, on a large scale, MLSE is a very different organization than almost anyone else. But you look at the way they expand into creating new products um, out of being a sports entity. I think that's really interesting from a strategic perspective. Brilliant. Lo lots of good uh, recommendations, I suppose, for people on this side of the pond to, to keep an eye out for. And good future guests for this podcast. Indeed. indeed. So thank you, Russell. Um, and Russell, another question we ask our guests is, um, could you recommend your your strategy book or podcast of, of choice? That'd be great. Um, book. I'll, let me give you two. And, and I think they actually complement each other really well. I mean, talking because we've talked about strategy and analytics and they're the same and they're also different. Um, Measure What Matters, which is by John Doerr, um, which is really around OKRs, Objectives and Key Results. Um, that's think of me of the, the quantitative side about really thinking about how you measure things and create different elements of measurement. But then the flip side of that, uh, one of my favorite books more recently is Think Again by Adam Grant, um, which I think is, a, is an interesting compliment because the idea there is you should never be 100% sure about anything. You know, don't have overconfidence in 
just have from a, from having just a little bit of information because you're probably missing perspective. Ask questions. Don't overfocus on on one particular piece of data, right? So it's the OKRs are great to create goals and measurement, but think again is about how you ask questions and communicate in order to get people to see different perspectives. Noted and added to the list. Uh, Russell, it is always a pleasure to chat. Uh, thank you very much for your time and, and we really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. It's always fun. <laughs>